0: welcome to insert your wisdom a podcast by the perennial leader project in this episode my guest is mark matusik the author of the new book lessons from an american stoic how emerson can change your life mark is a best-selling author teacher, and speaker whose work focuses on personal awakening and creative excellence through transformational writing. He is the founder of the Seekers Forum, a global community dedicated to the pursuit of a more awakened and meaningful life through the practice of self-inquiry. In this episode, you can expect to learn why Ralph Waldo Emerson is a perennial figure, Emerson's connection to Stoic philosophy, the role of thinking for ourselves, how Emerson's philosophy can aid us in difficult times, wisdom, paradoxes, and so much more. I really enjoyed this one and hope you do as well. Without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Mark Matusik. All right. Well, Mark, welcome to In Search of Wisdom.
1: Thank you, Joshua. It's really great to be with you.
0: It's a pleasure to have you. I've really enjoyed going through your new book, which we're going to talk about today. Lessons from an American Stoic, how Emerson can uh, change your life. So it's exciting. But before we get into it, we generally start with this, I guess, maybe a standard opening question of how you initially came to have an interest in philosophy, Emerson, you know, fill in the blank of of what comes to mind there, Mark.
1: Sure. Well, I grew up in a house where there was a lot of uncertainty, trauma, violence, and hardship, uh, and there was no one really around to help me with the problems that I was confronting. And so I turned inward at a really young age. I started journaling at a very young age, about eight years old, eight or nine years old to try to figure out what was going on inside of me and why everyone around me was so confused. Uh, And I feel like that was my beginning as a seeker. Uh, I was always someone who asked a lot of questions because there was so much confusion. And so the beauty of having a difficult childhood is that it it can turn you into someone who looks under the surface for answers that aren't apparent. And so I really started my life... uh, As a seeker, as as a child, and then it it it, uh, escalated. So I I went through. So there was a lot of confusion in my childhood. I went through a life and death situation in my twenties, and I was really lucky as a graduate student uh, to come across Emerson's work at a time when I really needed some guidance. I didn't know who he was. I was hired as a research assistant for a professor writing a book about him, and I found in Emerson. Uh, answers to questions that I didn't even know I had, that I hadn't even quite formulated for myself. He was the first writer I came across who had a sense of what human potential was beyond anything I had come across in my atheistic Jewish background. And he was the first transcendental voice that I came across. And he gave me so much hope for what was possible uh, if we start to ask uh, deep questions of ourselves and really pursue the answers down to their root, so that mm-hmm. was how it came that's how it happened for me as a kid uh, and it has just grown he's been with me for most of my life he's seen me through some of the most mm-hmm. you know difficult times i've uh, that I've gone through, and I feel like he's a kind of uh, guardian angel for me
0: hmm well, beautiful. Uh, I'm definitely grateful for the for the background there and you sharing that. I'm picturing um, what you write about in the book of this portable Emerson that that you have that's all all torn up and and been with you through the through the years. Let me ask you maybe a maybe it's another standard follow up question related there around the search piece. You talked about starting. Very young, this you know inward look, you know journaling and things like that. But it sounds like it's still going today. You know, many many decades later, and that is a consistent thing with many of the guests that I've had on. There's some sort of thing that like gets a search that's started, and and maybe that path is is different for for everyone, but. It's like this lifelong search, if you will. How do you make sense of unending searches, if that's how you see it?
1: I think life is a practice. It's an ongoing
0: practice
1: of self-discovery. I think that's why we're here. So the idea that we're going to come to the end of the search and somehow, you know, sit back on our laurels and just rest in that, you know, that completed wisdom is, is a myth. I think we're here to ask questions. We're here to know who we are. As Emerson said, that the unfolding of his nature is the chief end of man. And watching our nature unfold only happens when we're paying attention. And that's Mm -hmm. something that uh, we cultivate throughout our lives. So I I really do think that seekers are a breed unto ourselves. Uh, We tend Mm -hmm. to be troubled people. We tend to be people with a lot of conflict, people who have intense inner lives, unresolved issues all of those things that can be problematic in life are actually extremely useful on the seeker's path because Mm -hmm. what you realize is that what wakes you up spiritually uh, may not be what makes you uh, satisfied in any sort of conventional way emotionally uh, as a human being so what feeds you spiritually may be anathema to the ego so mm-hmm. what happens is as life gives you more and more challenges, you realize that there's always spiritual grist for the mill, that this is, these are opportunities for awakening. So it really turns upside down this idea of life as this inalienable uh, pursuit of happiness in a kind of selfish sense. You realize that that's unattainable. But what mm-hmm. can be attained is a level of self-awareness uh, and mindfulness and self-mastery That happens by looking at the hard, uh, the hard issues and looking at the things that are, that we can't quite, uh, resolve. That's where the truth is. And it's complex, uh, and it's elusive, but it's fascinating. If you're a seeker, it's fascinating. So when mm-hmm. students ask me, "When am I going to come to the end of all these questions? Why do I have to keep asking the same questions over and over?" You know, I tell them because that's the practice of living. That's the craft of living, as Plato called it. And mm-hmm. the craft of living is based on uh, self-knowledge, which comes through paying attention and asking questions. And that, for seekers, is the is what makes life interesting.
0: Yeah, I love it. So so great to have you have you here, Mark. And we generally start with um, maybe uh, defining some terms and things like that that might come up through the um, conversation. One is is something you mentioned, uh, transcendentalist or transcendentalism. Uh, But before we, we get to that, for anyone that is not super familiar with Emerson. Could you talk a little bit about like the where, when, and and why he's uh, an important figure today? Absolutely. Emerson was our
1: first, uh, our founding philosopher as Americans. Uh, he was born in the early uh, 19th century. He lived to almost 80. So his lifespan you know, went across most of the 19th century. And he saw many of the hardest times that we've gone through as a nation. He went through abolition, and he went through slavery, he went through the Civil War. uh, And he was important at a time when the country was really coming to have a sense of itself and its own direction. And he warned against many of the things that we are confronting today. You know, rampant materialism, losing a spiritual foundation, uh, losing a sense of the transcendent, uh, as we uh, were becoming more and more immersed in a capitalist consumer culture. You know, he talked about the importance of transcending tribalism, uh, the uh, mm-hmm. get, not being fooled by fake news. You know, a lot of the mm-hmm. things that we're struggling with today are things that Emerson uh, prophesied uh, you know, over 150 years ago. So he was, he was a sentinel really. He was the canary in the philosophical coal mine of uh, American, uh, American growth and degradation. Mm. Uh, and so his message of self-reliance is also something that we haven't understood. You know, people have tended to think of self-reliance as rugged individualism, the kind of macho uh, American cowboy John Wayne mm-hmm. ideal. But for Emerson, self-reliance was a spiritual path. And this is the one thing I want people to take from my book that has been forgotten. You know, Self-reliance was a spiritual path. He said self-reliance is reliance on God, however you define God. He said there's nothing so weak as an egotist. So <laughs> he was really going against the whole trend toward self-aggrandizement, uh, selfishness, uh, competition, You know, looking at ourselves as a country above other countries, all of that was uh, anathema to Emerson. Uh, As a transcendentalist, he really spoke to the unity of being, the unity of humankind. And that's something that we need desperately in our uh, public discourse today. We've lost all sense of the commonality uh, and our shared interest in preserving life on the planet. Uh, and preserving a sense of decorum and public decency. We've lost so much of that today. And that's exactly Mm -hmm. what he cared about most. He cared about the unfolding of the individual and the greatness that is inherent in in each of us. He spoke about Mm -hmm. the infinitude of the private man, that each of us has this territory inside us that is much bigger than our personality. Uh, and our little picture of the little me. So Mm. what transcendentalism is about is uh, cultivating a more direct relationship with the divine or with the metaphysical, however you define that. Mm. Uh, And finding that very often through nature. That was one of his great themes, along with Thoreau, his protege, was that nature is our greatest teacher. And so by returning to our connection to nature... Uh, we discover, we rediscover, we remember our own origins. That's really the heart of transcendentalism.
0: Mm, beautiful. Um, I, I love this idea of the, you know, first first philosopher, this American philosopher. <clears throat> and as you're talking this this thing of the the spiritual path, which is. The term spirituality is is pretty common today, but I, I'd have to imagine in his time that idea as as we think about it, maybe as he was talking about it, spirituality was a bit uh, an understatement, might be. It's pretty a bit countercultural, so like he had this training and upbringing in Christianity, but spoke a bit beyond you know just this uh, you know one particular religion.
1: Could you say more about that? Sure. He was, you know, he was a radical. He was a spiritual uh, rebel. He was a seventh generation minister who left the church when he lost his conventional faith. Uh, and he founded this school of transcendentalism, which, as I said, was all about uh, an unmediated relationship with God, not needing church or dogma or tradition. And this was extremely revolutionary at the time. You know, after he gave his Divinity School address at Harvard, he was banned from the campus of Harvard for 30 <laughs> years. It was so out there because he came in and told these little boys and, who are studying to be ministers, you don't need school, you don't need books, you don't need tradition, go into the woods and find, your, and find God, you know, connect with what is already inside you. So this was, this was out there. He was an outlier. The good mm. news is that because he was so extremely eloquent uh, and he was so genteel, you know, he was a good bourgeois, he was a, he was a Boston Brahmin, he was able to communicate these radical ideas in language that, uh, that spoke uh, and communicated itself to, to a lot of people. So he had the ability to put these out there ideas into language that uh, seduced people, into language that, that really moved people. And so he was able to uh, have a career for over fifty years as a speaker on the Lyceum circuit, uh, mm-hmm. and which is which was actually I would say it's the it was the they were the spiritual seekers of our time, the the, mm-hmm. the audiences at the Lyceum at the Lyceum lectures, and so he was able to you know step outside the church outside church dogma and uh, develop a public voice. That was his own. That wasn't limited by what uh, the Unitarian Church said w- what was o- o- okay to communicate. So he really stepped outside and created a new way of looking at spirituality. You know, as citizens of a new country, who were trying to figure out where we belonged in the in the you know the system the system of nations uh, and, and and the way of the world. So he was our leader. He was our first philosopher. Uh, He was, I like to say, he was our first self-help author. Uh, Mm -hmm. He was exclusively devoted to how we can live better lives, deeper lives, more truthful, spiritual lives as individuals. And that's the Mm -hmm. other thing people don't understand about him is that although he was a transcendentalist, he was also very focused on originality, uh, nonconformity, and being ourselves. What he understood is that there's no conflict between originality and unity with all other beings. Hmm. And that's where we sometimes get lost. We think that in order to belong, in order to be unified with a church or with a nation, uh, we need to stop being ourselves. And he said, on the contrary, the more personal we are, the more unique, particular, and truthful and authentic we are, the more universal uh, we become. And that's a paradox that that hasn't always been understood.
0: Yeah, you know something I f- I find interesting, um, like this idea of thinking for yourself, but then also, it it doesn't mean that you're not necessarily reading the thoughts of others. Like like as you mentioned in the uh, the title of the book, "Lessons from an American Stoic," someone that is influenced also by the the writing of, of the Stoics So maybe you could talk a little bit about that you know reading others but also at the same time you know cultivating your own your own voice
1: yeah no that's that's very important because he always warns against being over influenced by the past. Uh, however of course we are all products of what we've learned and what we've read and what we've been exposed to. So it's it's finding the middle way, uh, as a Buddhist put it. And honestly, Ralph Waldo Emerson was a good Buddhist. You know, he was really all about the middle way. We can't avoid outside influences. We can't avoid our own education. But we can question our own education. And we can scrutinize the influences that have impacted us. And then out of that, develop our own way uh, of being and our own way of seeing you know, he talks about the angle of vision and questioning your angle of vision. And we need to understand that that angle of vision, that personal perspective, is a composite of what we've mm-hmm. learned before and the conditioning we've had and our own expectations. So uh, admiring, honoring our predecessors without being uh, dominated by
0: them uh, was mm-hmm. Emerson's way. I love it. Was there any particular Stoics that? maybe had the biggest influence, you think, on, on his uh, philosophy and thinking?
1: I would say Seneca and Marcus Aurelius. You know, He talks about Marcus Aurelius a lot. Mm. Uh, and you hear the echoes between Marcus's uh, meditations and his teachings and, and Emerson's writings uh, throughout uh, his life. You know, mm-hmm. For example, you know what is you know, what is uh, good for the what, what is it, bad for the hive is bad for the bee. What's bad for the bee is bad for the hive, uh, and vice versa. You know he he talks about understanding that we are a part of a group, but that society is not your friend. And what mm-hmm. he meant by that is understanding that we are part of a social contract. We're part of a we're part of uh, of a community. But that if we allow community and society uh, to dictate what we permit ourselves to express or who we permit ourselves to be, then we've lost we've lost the plot of what it means mm-hmm. to be self reliant. Uh, and Marcus has that understanding as well. You know, it's all about self inquiry and being deadly honest uh, with yourself about uh, about what the world is, who you are, and why you're doing the things that you're you're doing so it's really about taking back responsibility for our own choices you know while recognizing that we're part of a of a larger system it's both and and that's another Mm -hmm. thing i talk about a lot in the book it's all paradox Uh, and emerson comes back again and again to the idea of paradox we are a mass of contradictions (laughs) he had something he called the law of compensation which is that for every sour there's a sweet for every strength there's a weakness and every virtue that you've ever been lucky enough to uh, to experience will bring its own downfalls. It will have its own shadows. So self-reliance is about expanding our view to allow for both, to allow for paradox, uh, to allow for a dialectical approach as opposed to an either-or approach. That's what spiritual maturity is about.
0: Mm. Beautiful. That is... Uh... Probably my favorite uh, part of the book is towards the end. You have these spiritual exercises, and I, I want to say it's uh, twelve lessons with uh, a few exercises in each of those. and And one I made a note of. We'll we'll chat in a bit. Is on uh, on paradox. Yeah, absolutely, love it. So let me ask if we could go back to that that time. You said um, in your early twenties, if I heard correctly, of you know getting this fatal diagnosis and you know you have this portable emerson essentially as a as a guide with you through this difficult time is there a a particular lesson or or two that that you think is you know really helpful for someone that is is dealing with with something like you were dealing with at the time
1: absolutely i mean the one thing was Emerson's take on adversity and grief. Hmm. He he says, when it is dark enough, you can see the stars. And I saw that in that time when I really didn't expect to be here for very long, that there was a way that darkness was connected to illumination. It was connected to awakening. And that it wasn't for nothing. That was for me the big revelation, that suffering, uh, adversity, grief, pain could be used for a good purpose. For me, that was that was uh revelatory. It really changed my life because I had come from a very depressive background. I came from a family without any spiritual uh foundation at all. And life was a bitch and then you die, and you know it was, you know, every man for himself. All of those bad lessons had been what I what I took in as a kid. So to realize that suffering has a purpose that it can be turned to a purpose uh, and that it deepens us that it connects us to other people in pain Uh, and that when that there's another level of being beyond the ego getting what it wants or not getting what it wants and that's about spiritual awakening for me that was the big aha joshua seeing that I could use this experience of really being with my back against the wall and, and basically waiting for, waiting for this, the sands and the hourglass to, to run out, that I could use that time uh, to become happier. It sounds mm. paradoxical, but I was. Mm. After 10 years, Still, I, I still expected that I, would, I was waiting for my time to be up. But after 10 years on the road, I left my job in New York, uh, I went to India. I started studying. I met teachers. I learned about meditation. I was happier than I had ever been. Even though outwardly, you know, people could say that I my my life had never been worse. But the yeah. fact is that I felt inwardly more rich and more uh, with a stronger sense of myself and my own purpose than I had ever had before. And wow. that was extraordinary for me. Seeing that 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 your you know your that awakening could be happening in direct proportion to danger and difficulty and and pain was was, was radical
0: mm. it's fascinating i i really appreciate you you sharing that with us mark do you think it was a a particular moment you know or more of this long dark night of the soul type of thing to come to some of these realizations. Maybe it's a both and as well there, but
1: <laughs> it, it, it is a both hand because there are, there are moments of big insight moments of epiphany and then long walls in between when you're not sure if anything is happening and you're hanging on by hanging on by your, 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 fingertips. Uh, and mm. when you, know, in retrospect, you see the progress in the moment i would have moments of realizing that 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 i was really well and that, that i felt stronger uh, and that life was better and then there would be there would be another 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 trauma or another you know bad episode that you know that that sets you back and that's a parad- that's the paradigm of life that's how life works you know we don't we're not always aware in the moment of what we know or of how we're being changed it's in retrospect that we that we, that we realize it. But I had enough hints along the way that I was on the right, I had no doubt I was on the right path, but I had enough hints along the way that I was actually changing. Uh, mm-hmm. I wasn't as thrown by fear as I used to be. I could learn to sit with fear. And that was another thing I learned from Emerson, with uh, how to sit with fear, to do the thing you're afraid of. And that is how fear comes to an end, by confronting mm-hmm. Fears. I real, I wasn't as as sunk by my fears as I had been before I came across Emerson. No one had ever said to me, "Look your fear straight in the eye, and it will start to diminish." That was radical. Of course, you find it in spiritual teachings all over the place now. But I came across it in Emerson, uh, who had lived with so much fear his entire life. He was had tuberculosis as a boy. He expected to die throughout his whole life. He thought he was going to die young. Uh, as a young man. And so he dealt with this all the time. So reading his journals and seeing how he coped with his own uh, terrors and his own insecurities uh, helped me uh, enormously. If Emerson could do that, you know I used to say to myself if, if Emerson could do that, you know maybe maybe I can too.
0: Yeah. And if I remember correctly, um from the book he uh his his first wife passed away relatively early on. Am I remembering that that correctly?
1: Yeah, she was the great love of his life, uh, and Ellen Tucker. And she had uh, tuberculosis when he met her and fell in love with her. Uh, and she died within a year or so, a little more than a year after they met. And he nursed her through this terrible disease. And that, for him, was a huge awakening. The worst thing happening turned out to be the greatest boon he could have experienced at that moment in his life. At first, he fell into a deep depression uh, and he couldn't pull out of it. He had suicidal thoughts. People were very worried about him. He stopped eating and sleeping. Uh, And then one day he had this idea that in order to move forward, he needed to face his greatest fear. So he went to the cemetery uh, and he opened her coffin and he looked at her dead body. Mm-hmm. And he, we don't know exactly what happened. We know that he went to the tomb. and that he, didn't, he didn't elaborate on in the journal. But what we do know is that within months of that, uh, he had left for Europe. He had started his career as a writer. Uh, he left his position as a minister. He gave up the church. So it catalyzed all of these necessary and important changes in his life. And it only happened because he kind of shook himself out of his, of his sphere. You know, he knew something about the Buddhist practice of, of meditating in charnel grounds uh, with, you know, with, with the skulls and the skeletons. So I think that was his model for doing what he did. Uh, and it, it, did the, it did the trick. And so he, he, he lived his teaching and the teaching came out of his life. Uh, and it was only it was, it was only by going through this terrible period of stripping down and purgation and questioning everything that his life had been built on that he was able to break through uh, to his real work and in his true voice as as a writer and as a teacher.
0: Yeah, it's such an interesting thing of um, like suffering and maybe like coming face to face face to face with uh, like eternal truths of the, of the world. Um, Reading that, I was thinking of Theodore Roosevelt, uh, you know, his life of he, he lost the love of his life uh, very early and and very, very young and writing in uh, his journal that day, you know, the light of my life has went out, this like dark night of the soul. Like sometimes it's, It's us dealing with a fatal diagnosis like yourself. Sometimes it's, you know, losing a a loved one. Um, But it's such an interesting thing around these events, like shaping our perspective and things like that, which is something that that obviously comes up in Emerson quite a bit of how we're we're seeing seeing, uh, the world and ourselves.
1: Well, your spiritual traditions have always understood this, that mortality is the great awakener. Mm. You know, because the ego's hold on the self is so tight, it's so rigid, it's so fear-bound that nothing short of death is really powerful enough to force us to question who we are really, what the mm. ego is really, you know, uh, what 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 we, what exists beyond our attachments. You know, is there something in us that can't be lost? You know, mm. I'll say for myself that had I not been faced with a, with a fatal disease in my 20s, I would have stayed in publishing. I would have probably kept climbing the, the ladder, uh, the corporate ladder that I was miserable on. Uh, I didn't have any other vision of my life. Uh, and it was only when I was uh, confronted with possibility of dying that I started to ask, what, in me, what is there in me that can't die? Is there something mm-hmm. in me that is transcendent, that's beyond this, this, you know, this little, you know, set of conditions and circumstances that I call myself and my life? Nothing short of that kind of terror would have possibly taken me out of my plum job at a magazine in New York and 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 made me into a dharma bomb for ten years, <laughs> sleeping on people's couches and and you know, living hand to mouth. Nothing, abs- absolutely mm-hmm. nothing. Uh, and, and that's the beauty of mortality is that it reminds us to look for what can't die, what doesn't die, the part of us that's beyond what we, what we can hold on to. Thank God for that. Honestly, I don't, I don't wish it on anyone. And I have to say that it's the best thing that can happen when you use that information for awakening, when you use it for questioning and in the service of freedom. And I say this because, as a child, this this came out of a life that, as a seeker, that had started, like I said, when I was a kid. So I was primed. I was a ripe tar. I was a ripe candidate <laughs> for this. Not everyone did that. I knew other people who yeah. who died young, uh, who didn't do that, who died bitter and and full of why me and self pity. Honestly, Joshua, because of my own childhood, I never asked why me, because I never felt that entitled. I never felt that fortunate. It was Mm. never why me. It was more what now. And what you discover when you are exposed to danger and fear over a long period of time is that uh, panic has a shelf life, just like everything else. You know, terror has a shelf life. It passes. And then what? And that's really the question. That's where the inquiry begins.
0: Mm. How do you make sense of the, you might call it, good fortune of um this basically research that you were doing for a particular professor you know that really gave you a deep dive into emerson into maybe some writing that you wouldn't necessarily pick up at your local local bookstore um it seems like good fortune to then maybe a decade later to really be able to use this wisdom to navigate some rough waters?
1: I I think that we're always being given signs. I think that there are guide posts. There are teachers when we're looking for them. Because I've always been so hungry for wisdom and hungry for truth and wanting to be happier, uh, I've always been on the lookout for things that could help me and people who could help me. So at different mm-hmm. periods of my life and this meeting of Emerson was a major one I have I have I've met teachers when I needed them uh, mm-hmm. at those moments when I really needed an answer or some kind of guidance things have appeared whether it's in the form of a person or a book or a podcast or whatever it happens to be because I'm hungry for it so I think it's about cultivating the hunger and the curiosity and looking at our lives as as an education, as opposed to a battle or a cross to bear or, you know, using some of the other metaphors that people look at their lives through. If you look at your life as an education, there are teachers and being sensitive to them, um, which comes out of the hunger to be happier, the hunger to grow, the hunger to not be so miserable, um, <laughs> is what is what enables us to recognize them when they show up. <laughs> Someone else might have had that research job and, you know, learned what they learned in a year and just moved on. For me, it was manna from heaven.
0: I love it. I'm uh, I'm chuckling a bit. I'm thinking of a, a letter from Seneca on choosing our teachers and him talking about uh, the teachers that have long passed. They have plenty of time for us. They're always available. <laughs> They're always available. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pick up a book. Um, you write in the book that, you know, Emerson's wisdom is really exactly the medicine that we need today. Um, there's probably many reasons for that and you've touched on some, but is there maybe one idea or, or a couple that come to mind that you think are really well suited for, for the modern day?
1: The most important of all is that we are spiritual beings. We've lost in a secular materialist culture, we've lost our moorings, our our very foundation. And when we lose that, we lose everything. So Mm -hmm. until we rekindle a sense of our own, of our spiritual potential and what we actually are, what he calls the giant within us, until we remember that giant, Within us, everything else is going to elude us. So that is the most important thing: is realizing that we are on a spiritual path and that we have the potential to live in a, in a different way. Uh, and that's something many people have forgotten these days. You know, we're so at the effect of uh, of, of the bad news and the doomsday. Uh, mentality of the information age that many people have lost a sense of inner guidance. And Emerson is all about trusting your inner guidance, trusting the still small voice within you. And the world has gotten so loud that we, many don't take time to listen to that, that, that still small voice within what he called our genius, that, that tutelary Mm. spirit in us that wants us to awaken, that's there to guide us toward our own potential. People are, are, are so hung up on Twitter and Instagram and, and all of the you know, 24-7 uh, saturation of external noise that, that we know about uh, that they've forgotten that they are the source of their own wisdom. And that's what Emerson uh, can remind us of, that hmm. we have this extraordinary power. Uh, and this ex- intelligence that's connected to something bigger than, ju- than, than our, little, our, little, uh, our little brain. He called it the one mind, you know, mm-hmm. that our thoughts, our inspirations, our, 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 our wherewithal is coming from a source that is beyond us. So it's about opening. It's about becoming receptive. It's about not being aggressive and on the make all the time, which so many people are in our culture. And living with gratitude, that's another huge thing, is living with gratitude. I mean, we know now that there's so much science about gratitude. We understand how it, it changes our lives, but uh, it didn't exist in his time. For him, that was, that was a, a pretty radical thing to say, that even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of conflict, uh, to, to chant the beauty of the good, as he said, chant the beauty of the good, that's what we need more of today. Uh, and Emerson's optimism—it's important to understand. It wasn't—it wasn't, it wasn't um, saccharine Pollyanna kind of optimism. It was optimism based on facing the facts, uh, but optimism that comes from a spiritual source. Understanding that, regardless of what's happening around us, the hardships going on, something else is also true. And so he mm. wants to remind us of the metaphysical dimension of our lives and, and, and the mystery of our lives and being remembering awe. Uh, he says the proper emotion is wonder. You know, we've forgotten about wonder. You know, we're overwhelmed with all of this amazing innovation, um, uh, but we don't have a lot of awe. We don't have a lot of wonder. Dr. Keltner has just written a, a terrific book about, about awe and the deprivation of awe when that Uh, happens and so so ironically as we have more reasons to be awed, we're actually less awestruck than people were in the past so what i'm hoping the book does is rekindle some of this sense of awe and awe Mm. is a transcendental metaphysical uh emotion
0: yeah and i think you did such a wonderful job with that the book reads so so practical um and I love, I made a note as you're talking about like gratitude and optimism of this uh, idea of cosmic optimism. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love it. I love it. Um, let me ask you a, a few questions here. I, I made some notes. You outline briefly 10 principles of Emerson's philosophy. I wanted to maybe just touch briefly on a few and and, and get some thoughts from you. The first that says, each person creates her own reality. What do you mean there?
1: This, this goes to the heart of Buddhism. It goes to the heart of all non-dual philosophy, which is that we are, uh, we are interpreting machines. We're story-making machines. We're homo nerons, the, the storytelling ape. You know, it's how we navigate through the world by creating um, interpretations of things uh, honing a perspective on things, and then living as if that were the truth. Uh, so we, everyone knows that you, you and I are sitting here having this conversation. We're both in different movies, depending on who <laughs> we are, how we slept, how much we're enjoying you know, the, the, the talk, whatever it happens to be. We're all in our own reality. Uh, so understanding the nature of your own lens, your own angle of vision uh, is imperative uh, to awakening. Because, of course, every angle of vision has blind spots. Uh, it's, it's based on biases and, 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 and uh, background and conditioning and all kinds of things that have nothing to do with what's actually happening. So mm. looking carefully at our experience is
0: really key to Emerson's path. Mm, beautiful. And another one I made note of is virtue is the portal to happiness. Yeah.
1: Well, that, of course, is an old Stoic idea, Mm -hmm. that eudaimonia, that happiness, that sort of unitive happiness that connects us with the rest of of the world, comes through virtue. But virtue, not in some goody-goody, know, moralistic sense, but virtue in the sense of becoming as our, our largest self, stepping into our own large potential. That's what virtue is. And virtue is connected to the rest of humanity. It's not an, it's not an individualistic thing. You know, virtue, um, virtue is a, is a bridge uh, to, to other people. And there is no eudaimonia, there is no happiness without interconnection. And that's mm-hmm. where Emerson and the Stoics are in complete alignment with, with each other. You know, that until we step into that larger sense of ourselves, we can't connect to other people. We won't care enough, uh, to connect with other people. Uh, and without that, there is no happiness. You know, he said, uh, insulate a man and you annihilate him. If we don't have, uh, if we are not a part of the, of, of, of the human race, if we don't understand our human, our humanity, uh, we're going to, we're going to be diminished.
0: Yeah. And that one there, it, uh, as you're talking about it, it makes me think of, something the Buddha said of like, you know, don't take my word for it, experience it yourself. You know, that idea, virtue is the portal to happiness. As you mentioned in the beginning, it seems like the more we're in tune with observing our inner experience, we can see that for ourselves, you know, for any listeners out there, like go notice, go embody a bit of virtue. And I I think, um, you know, they'll, they'll experience that for themselves, that it is the portal to happiness. And the third one I made a note of here, the God in you basically, um, connect you to the God in all things. And I'm curious just to add something to that, to channel maybe any listeners that have a bit of aversion to things like God, religion, spirituality. Um, if you could talk a bit about that.
1: Sure. And I was, I grew up as an as an atheist agnostic. The word God has always turned me off. And so I understand that the you know the language can be a little antiquated and off-putting. When we're talking about God, the God within, we're talking about that transcendental self, that being that animates our lives, that thing that we share with all other beings. You know, the part of me that is connected to the one mind, to the oversoul, is the same uh, as the part of you that's connected to that. And so when you understand that soul, spirit, God, whatever you want to call it, it, it's like the vertex in the triangle. It's the thing that connects to two people. Uh, Then you realize that you're part of something much, much larger than yourself and that your individuality, while important, isn't the final word on Mm -hmm. things. So you respect your uniqueness, you respect your singularity while understanding that, that, it is, that it's part of a much, much bigger picture. And the way we become aware of that is by getting quiet uh, and settling in and realizing the degree to which we are porous you know, with all of being and all of other people. Uh, and, and that's what gives us this sense of unity. It's not, it's not conceptual, you know, it's visceral, when we get very quiet, I don't know if you meditate, but there are moments in meditation when the mind starts to settle uh, enough that you lose a sense of your rigid boundaries. You have a very mm. strong sense of yourself as being, uh, being this breathing thing in a breathing universe. And you see mm. that you are not the source of your own being, that there's something greater than you that's the source of your own being. So touching into that quietness by whatever means and calling it whatever you want uh, is what ultimately connects you to uh, the rest of humanity and helps you transcend the ego. With its, you know, the personality has so many has so many blockades, so many things in it to to consolidate its own existence that it leaves the rest of the world out. So it's really only by softening the sense of self softening the ego that we begin to let the world in and that love becomes possible.
0: Mm. Beautiful. And as I mentioned earlier this idea of uh, paradox I, I captured a little bit of a long passage here that I that I want to read I think it's so important and again it's from the the end of the book the which is is the spiritual exercises. You write Reflect on the doubleness of experience and how apparent opposites can be equally true at the same time. Remember that there are two sides to what happens, at least. And that wisdom results in the ability to hold opposing truths in your mind at the same time without either canceling the other out. Absolutely. Love that. Could you say more there, Mark?
1: that That's huge, and that goes back to the law of compensation and the fact that in the in the physical universe, in our human lived experience, there are opposites, and that everything has its shadow, uh, and that something else is also true, no matter what's going on. Uh, You, on any given day, you're fearful and brave, you're stingy and generous, you're open and closed, that we are both. Uh, And really understanding that, uh, first of all, it helps you meet your own obstacles and your own difficulties and the adversities in your life uh, with less self-pity. And understanding that, that bad can lead to good and that illness can lead to health, whatever the, the darkness happens to be, gives you much more range. It gives you a lot more courage. Uh, it increases self-acceptance. Uh, so much of our suffering comes from not allowing for our own contradictions and not allowing for paradox. Hmm. So really it's impossible to mature as an individual and to uh, to maintain a, a, a sense of a purpose uh, and a desire for for living without understanding this law of compensation and and without understanding the doubleness of things. So instead of living our lives uh, resenting them and trying to make things one-sided and monolithic, uh, we look at life as it is. And we see that no matter how much you love someone, when you get close enough, there are going to be things that you hate. It's inevitable. Big surprise. So when you get to that 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 position of big surprise, you know you're no longer in this childish um, head of wanting things to be the way they are, wanting them to be simple. You know why does everything have to have another side to it? You stop arguing with reality and you start opening to the way things are, and that brings a lot more strength. That brings a lot more clarity and 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 a greater peace.
0: Hmm. How do you think about the the work of getting better at holding those two, you know, better at not canceling the other out. And I realize that's a big question and a, and a difficult question, but any sort of initial steps to that?
1: Well, the initial step is step by step. It's case by case. It's moment by moment. It's two steps forward, one step back. It's an ongoing practice. Uh, It's developing a sense of humor. This is huge because a lot of us lose our sense of humor. We lose uh, how how ridiculous we are and how absurd and how this really is a comedy uh, in in a certain way. We take everything too seriously and too selfishly. Uh, So the way to cultivate this awareness, this acceptance of paradox uh, is by opening moment to moment and when you're not able to do it watching your responses watching your reactions and writing about them i'm a great believer in using uh writing for for self-inquiry ask yourself what am i telling myself what is my story about what's going on here and then you write it down and you say gosh is that what i believe how immature is that or how one-sided is that so you start to, and when you do that you develop what sometimes called the witness. So it means uh, this witness awareness in us is bigger than the little ego that wants what it wants when it wants it. And writing is one great way of harnessing, uh, awakening that witness awareness. Uh, And the more we do that, the more space there is for the dualities of life. And and recognizing that although we are non-dual in the largest sense, on a physical level, we are dualistic creatures. That everything has two sides. That what is uh, what lives dies. So, if you have if you have a larger context, Joshua, it helps you a lot in mm. wrestling with uh, the dualities of, of of the complexities of life. You know, it's so mm-hmm. we, there are so many uncertainties, and so there's so much danger and insecurity. Uh, in life that's really only by enlarging our awareness that we can hold it in a bigger space mm. so that we're not in conflict with
0: ourselves. Yeah, wonderful. And let me uh, say something related to that before we get to this final question of how should we define or think about wisdom in daily life for the for the listeners here. So we're like a, a hundred and some episodes into this and we've asked many, many people this question. And we're not necessarily after any sort of single answer to wisdom or not trying to say that there, that there is one. Um, like, for example, many of the things that we've heard in these hundred and some episodes are very wise, useful. You know, and and sometimes I think about the and it's it's this and it's that and it's that and it's that. So many, many and so I just say that related to this idea of paradox around this question. So to wrap up the conversation briefly, what comes to mind around you know, defining or or thinking about wisdom in daily daily life, Mark?
1: It comes down to telling the truth. For me. And truth is a relative term. I'm talking about human, messy, changeable truth, lowercase t. But being as, uh, as radically honest with ourselves as possible moment to moment, looking as clearly with as few filters, uh, with as few excuses uh, and evasion as possible at what is actually happening moment to moment in our, in our uh, subjective experience that's mm. the only path of wisdom that I know of. Otherwise we're living in someone else's story or we're living in some delusion about things. And this is a, this is a difficult thing to do. You know, most of us are honest people more or less, you know, we try to tell the truth more or less, but the fact is that we lie every day of our lives uh, through euphemism, through omission, through, um, uh, through, uh, protecting our reputation, You know, there are so many reasons that we aren't completely honest. So this isn't about blasting the truth to other people. This is about being inwardly truthful and finding a practice for that to happen. So if writing appeals to you, great. Uh, Some kind of reflection. Dialogue can be another great way. But being clear, unabashedly, shamelessly clear with ourselves about what is true and what we are experiencing and what we're telling ourselves about our own experience is really the first step uh, to living wisely uh, in our lives.
0: Well, this has been great. And again, the book is lessons from an American stoic. Is there anywhere that you'd point listeners that are interested in maybe learning more about your work in the world, Mark?
1: Sure. Well, two places they can visit my website. There's a lot, there are a lot of resources about my books and, and courses and things, but I also have a group called the seekers forum, uh which is an, a self inquiry group for exploring the kinds of questions we're looking into today so that's the seekersforum.com we have weekly uh guided writing sessions for doing the kind of practice we're talking about and we cover a different different topic around an awakened life uh, each month so it would be great to great to have people visit us there as well
0: Beautiful. Well, we'll link that in the show notes so it's easy to find. I'm sure many listeners uh, are interested in that. Mark Matusik, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. Thank you, Joshua. It's great to be with you. Thank you for listening. I hope you found something useful. If so, I encourage you to put what you heard into practice. You can learn more at perennialleader.com. There you'll find links to show notes. Until next time, be wise and be well.